Well, it turns out that his, the DNA in his blood was no longer his own. And then they checked his sperm and that was no longer his own, but it was actually that of his German donor. <laughs> Welcome to the Weird Christian Podcast. I am your host, Samuel Delgado, and this is episode 19. I interviewed Doug Hamp. Doug Hamp is a pastor, author, and speaker whose books, articles, and DVDs has led him to minister all around the world and has appeared on national and international TV, radio, and internet programs such as Prophecy in the News and Coast to Coast AM. Our discussion in this episode is around his latest book, Corrupting the Image 2, Hybrids, Hades, and the Mount Hermon Connection. We get into the dragon, the beast, the woman who rides the beast, and their connection to ancient Mesopotamia, the Nephilim, Nimrod, and so much more. So with no further ado, let's get weird. So why don't you start by telling us uh, your testimony, a little bit how you grew up and how you came to know Christ. All right. Well, I grew up in uh, Michigan. And uh, my parents were Christians, and so I'm very grateful for that. Um, you know, I, I I just grew up kind of as a nominal Christian. I believed what I was told, and that was that. And it really was when I started going elsewhere, and uh, where I went to college in North Carolina, I encountered a lot of people that saw things quite differently. And it was for the first time that I, I really had to dis- discover for myself why I believed what I believed. And that set me on the path to just start studying the Bible and I discovered I'd never actually read the Bible. I mean, I knew a couple stories from it and knew some things about it. And I knew the things I believed, but I wasn't actually sure why I believed those. And so that just created a huge interest in me to learn more about the Bible. And of course, the more you learn about it, the more you realize, well, I don't really know much about this at all. <laughs> and so I just kept, uh, just kept at it. And, um, very grateful for some really good mentors along the way who helped me uh, make some good decisions and to, you know, go to Israel ultimately was certainly a huge, uh, just a, a fulcrum, you know, in my life, a whole like pivot point, right. Where I, I really, I, I was diving in with both feet. Right. And I suddenly, I was exposed to this world of the Bible and uh, the, you know, the people at that point, you know, I didn't know a lot about the Jews, but I, I knew they, they knew something about the Bible that, that I didn't, you know, and so um, I just got to experience all these incredible things in Israel, uh, you know, certainly the places where Jesus walked, but also many of the people that you, of course, find in the Bible, you know, were there in Jerusalem and elsewhere, and it was life-changing. I mean, I would, I would do that again in a heartbeat. Uh, wow. to go to Israel. And uh, I, I, you know, I recommend it for people if they have the time or the money or the passion to go and do that and bootstrap it, you know, go for it because it's really an incredible experience to, uh, to, to live in a different culture. And it really was wonderful insofar as I got to learn Hebrew and that um, just learning Hebrew at a, a high proficiency was incredibly valuable for me because you know, I mean, I still read commentaries and whatnot because I don't know everything, but I can kind of sniff through the the nonsense sometimes when somebody's writing and I'm like, oh, you're 
you don't actually know what you're talking about in this particular case, right? Like no offense to them, but sometimes, uh, you know, they can be great and so much, but then there's that one time you're just like, actually, I don't think, you know, what this word actually means, you know? And so having a, a sense of Hebrew has really helped me to uh, gain greater insight into the scripture. Well, that's been fantastic. Yeah. So, yeah. And then, um, so after I went to Israel, uh, I got to work at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. I worked with Pastor Chuck Smith. And there I really learned to appreciate the verse by verse method of teaching the Bible, you know, the expositional method of teaching the Bible. So instead of, instead of picking a theme every week, you know, we're going to talk about love. We're going to talk about discipleship, which those are great themes, right? But kind of weaving those in as you teach through scripture so that you're always going through scripture. Yeah. I find that to be phenomenal and uh, really in my opinion, I think it's second to none. So that was great. And then I uh, finally moved back to Colorado. I had lived here a number of years before and uh, always wanted to get back. I love to ski. So uh, I know that's one of your questions for later, but <laughs> I love to ski. That's what, I, that's what I love to do for fun. And I also do Krav Maga. So those are, those are two fun things. But um, yeah, I, you know, I just, I want people to know the word. I, I love to share the discoveries that I've made because they often will blow my mind. And so I want to share how my mind's been blown and maybe yours will be blown too. <laughs> and so, you know, that's one thing you get to do when you're a researcher is uh, make these discoveries. And, and, you know, it's always tricky because I always want to make sure that I'm discovering something that's true, right? Not maybe my understanding is limited or maybe I don't have the proper skills to really, you know, dig into this question or, you know, maybe somebody already answered this and I'm not aware of that, right? So you, you always want to do your homework and make sure that when you come to something that's, you know, out of, outside of the paradigm uh, that is contrary to what people are thinking at large, you really want to double, double check your stuff. And so that's one of the things I've done, you know, especially with my Crypting the Image series where I'm kind of going counterculture a lot of my books are kind of counterculture because <laughs> I, I just, I keep finding these things in scripture. I'm like, wait, I, I was taught X, Y, and Z, but I see it here in scripture again and again. And it's really exciting, you know, to start making these discoveries and you're like, wow, that's pretty neat. You know? So I, that's what I try to do when I do my research is to just double check, make sure that I have all the facts on this particular topic. Awesome. Oh, thank you. Um, that makes a lot of sense because uh, uh, I really enjoyed uh, corrupting the image um, too, uh, and you you definitely get into some some controversy there and uh, topics that you just don't hear a lot about in church. And I think in your testimony, you described uh, a lot of a lot of modern day Christians, um, especially those that grew up in church and come from Christian homes. Um, the benefit of that is you're kind of always under that cover. Um, and, and you have that, that knowing you probably can be salvation at a very young age. Um, but then I think for many of us, you, you kind of reach, um, a point in adulthood or later in life where, um, that faith has to, uh, has to either, you know, you, you either walk away from the faith or it's strengthened because you reach a point where, um, maybe that, you know, the word or something that you've grown up with is challenged. 
and you're kind of met with this um uh with what you just described this whole notion of well i know what i believe but why do i believe it and so um i think it's awesome uh, how long were you in in israel i was there three years yeah i think that uh i think that's awesome um you know i think uh, i'm interviewing stan Deo next week he's also a big proponent of, of learning hebrew um and, uh, you know, as I was saying, when we prayed, I think it's so important that people, you know, seek out these things for themselves. I think, you know, one thing we see in, in the church today is people want to go to an outside source for their interpretation of the Bible, whether in most, most of the time that, you know, falls on, on, on the pastor, um, or as you mentioned, you know, at most people will seek out a commentary, um, you know, but, but I love that you see that, um, the importance of learning the Hebrew and, and digging in for yourself and, and, and seeing these truths. And when you do, you often come out with, with, with some, some, some things that maybe you've never heard of before. And so I think that's, uh, it's really cool. And that's kind of some of the stuff that we'll be getting into today. Um, so the, uh, the series corrupting the image is a trilogy. Did you always know it was going to be three uh, when you first uh, started to write? No, I didn't. And actually, I'm having a fourth part that I've already oh, wow. started working on. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, no, I, I really didn't. In fact, when I when I wrote Crypting Image 1, uh, Angels, Aliens, and the Antichrist Revealed, um, I, thought I, I thought I had said everything I needed to say on the topic. So I wasn't like holding back a bunch of material yeah. in book two, you know. But, uh, you know, some almost 10 years after I wrote that book, um, I started to look at things again, and I realized that there's a whole bunch of other questions that I have in regards to the book of Revelation. Um, some of those main questions are, why the woman that rides the beast? You know, like, who is this person? We've heard that it's the Vatican, or it's mm -hmm. New York City, or Las Vegas, or you, you pick your sinful place, and that's supposed to be the woman that rides the beast but it just didn't make sense and as i i started going into uh other things i was like wait there's something here and um you know in the book i, I show a cylinder seal where there's a a woman on the on a beast she's naked and of course there's the beast and then there's somebody driving a chariot that the beast is pulling and that little cylinder seal which is about from 2200 bc is it, it i i think it's really the essence of satan's uh whole his whole um uh, you know his his whole uh i can lock in the word here his project you know what he's what he's planning on doing for the uh the foreseeable future right you have a woman that's riding the beast the woman is inana she's the queen of heaven and she is the lure right she's the lure to the fish Right? The fish isn't going to bite the hook unless there's a good reason to bite it. Something that looks like food, something that could satisfy you. Right, And that's why the fish bites the hook. But once the fish is on the hook, you don't need the lure anymore because you mm. got the fish. And, and that's what mm. Inanna is all about, this Inanna or Ishtar. She's the woman that rides the beast. She can be any pleasure you want, whether it's money, power, position, fame, sex. She, she can do it all. And 
And that's what we see in the book of Revelation is this woman that rides the beast. And God is incredibly angry about her, and he's going to bring judgment upon her uh, in a very definite way. And, you know, so it couldn't just be the Roman Catholic Church, for example, as some people have suggested. I remember yeah. I, years ago, I read Dave Hunt's book, The Woman That Rides the Beast, and, you know, it was the Vatican, right? And, he, you know, he made, a, he made a pretty good case for it. I'm like, well, okay, maybe it's the Vatican, right? But it just doesn't go back far enough. So what I realized wow. is that I hadn't gone back to bedrock. And, you know, when you hit bedrock, then, you know, you've got a, a sure foundation. And that's what I did is I went back in volume two, I went back to ancient Sumer. Sumer is the word for Shinar, Shinar in the Bible, Sumer, which means the two rivers, Shneot in Hebrew, and it's Mesopotamia, right? That's between the rivers. That's exactly what we're talking about. And yeah. that is where Nimrod established the city of Babel. And Babel means the gate of the gods. And Nimrod, his name is, uh, in, in Akkadian, it actually means Lord Earth. And so he fancied himself to be the Lord of the Earth. And he's often represented as this beast that the woman is on. In fact, in that cylinder seal, Inanna is on the back of the beast, who is Ninurta or Nimrod. And they're being driven by Enlil, who is Satan, right? So that's basically in a nutshell, in one cylinder seal, that is yeah. his program of the ages. And I felt like when I really got back to these things that I hit bedrock and, and now we have a sense, okay, of who are these, who are these characters in the book of Revelation? I mean, we've always known that the dragon is Satan, but why is he called the dragon? You know, and why is he a red dragon? You know, why does he have seven heads and 10 horns? Uh, is, you know, was God like, I'm just going to make it really weird so that they can, you know, they'll see these visions and people will be confused forever. Or was there a reason? Do we so find something in the ancient world that really decodes these seven heads and the 10 horns? Well, sure enough, we do. When you go back to ancient Sumer, which is the land of Shinar, which is where Inanna comes from. Then you find that Enlil, he's wearing a crown with 10 horns on it. You find that there is a representation of Nimrod or Ninurta, and he is slaying a dragon with seven heads, and that becomes one of his symbols. Um, I mean, we just, it goes on and on. There's just so many symbols that are, that are, are identified for us in the ancient land of ancient Sumer. And, um, you know, I, I talk about uh, in the book how there's, you know, we symbols all around us, but we understand what, a, what the symbols are. For example, a red light. We know what a red light is. It means stop, right? But to somebody who did not grow up in our Western society or didn't have cars, they're coming from the deep, dark jungles of somewhere. And they come here and they see this red light. They'll be like, what does that mean? Like, I have no idea, right? Right. But we instinctively know it because this has been with us for a very long time. And you don't have to explain it. It's like, well, it's a red light, you know. And, you know, these are the kinds of symbols that were to some degree taken for granted. And I don't know to what extent that John knew all these symbols. I, I would suggest that probably many of them were already a bit murky 
by that time. But he may have been aware of some of these things because he was part of the Roman Empire and the Roman Empire had conquered, or at least they would conquer shortly thereafter, they would conquer the land of, uh, of Babylon. So anyway, all of these things uh, to say that, you know, I had to write another book and, and I, I discovered, um, you know, more than I bargained for. I mean, some of the things I discovered in there, I was like, oh, okay. I really didn't know that that was going to pop out at me. You know, sometimes when you write a book, you, you kind of have a sense of where you're going. And, you know, you, see, you write an outline and kind of what you want to prove. You have a thesis, right? What's your big question, right? And you certainly don't know all the facts as you're getting into it. But as you go through and do the research, then you have a, a pretty good handle on where you're going. But, and, and I did, I had a lot of things, but then I kept doing more research and I discovered this whole thing about, about Mount Hermon. And that blew my mind. I was like, oh my goodness, this is crazy, you know? And then it just, it all started to come together. And so that's why it's the, you know, hybrids, Hades and the Mount Hermon connection. And something that I discovered that was absolutely pivotal was that Satan was known um, definitively. He was known as the God of death. And, you know, we might think, oh, of course he's related to death or something like that, but no, no, he was known as the God of death. That was you know, not always like that wasn't not always his first title, but it was one of his many epithets, right? So he was known as Enlil in the ancient world. Enlil means Lord Wind, and in the Bible he's called the Prince of the Power of the Air. So you know, no mistake there. Right? That's not my accident. But of his different symbols and logograms, um, and just various names that are associated with him, he's referred to as Death, and. The reason that's important is because in the book of Revelation and other places in prophecy, we find that there's going to be a covenant with death and Sheol. And so until you have the identity of who is this God of death, then you're not really sure what's going on. For example, in Revelation chapter nine, you know, we see that a star fallen. I saw a star having fallen from heaven and to it was given the key to the abyss and then it opened it and smoke came out like the smoke out of a great furnace and then all these crazy hordes come out right 200 million uh, creatures come out of out of the abyss and who is this king that's over them well his his um his name is abadam right or apollyon which is the destroyer so you're like okay i don't know who that is right but, you know, again, you go back into the ancient world and you find that there was a god named Nergal. He was the god of death. He was the god of the underworld. And it turns out that he was a syncretism of other gods. So in case people don't know what a syncretism means, it just means that there's a, a synchronization. There's a, a link between the two. It's essentially an equal sign. Okay, so, you know, I don't know if... Uh, you know, um, you know, here in America, we say aluminum and in Britain, they say aluminum, right? <laughs> so yeah, those, yeah. those are the same thing, right? It's the same exact thing. It's just a different way of saying it. And so Nergal was the god of the underworld. Well, it turns out that Ninurta was also known as the god of the underworld. And so you, what you begin to find is that, oh, they're really all the same individual. They just have different names in different regions.
and um, and we even have on a stone from about 1200 BC, there's something called a Kuduru stone on which Nergal is depicted. And he is shown as the Sagittarius, in case people are familiar with that. Sagittarius, you know, it's, it's this uh, centaur, uh, which is very much, uh, you know, kind of cleaned up for uh, more of a PG uh, experience, right? But in, in the ancient world, uh, it really wasn't that. And it, it um, you know, it was this creature that had the torso of a man, of course, the body of a horse. It had wings. Uh, in some cases, it, it may have had uh, talons like on an eagle. Uh, sometimes it's kind of depicted as a lion body. But then it also has uh, a man's head and a lion's head. It has a scorpion's tail and it has a serpent head phallus. You're like, whoa, wait a second. What is this creature is exactly what John was looking at in Revelation chapter nine. And these were apparently the hordes that are that reside in the underworld in Hades. And you know, they're presumably going to come out. In fact, that's what people in the first century were expecting. They were uh, expecting the gates of Hades to open up at any moment. And uh, this incredible, devastating horde to come out and to destroy the land. And so Jesus says, no, the, the gates of Hades will not prevail, right? And it, it, this wasn't like a defensive thing. It wasn't like the gates of Hades are closing the door, trying to keep the good guys out. It's rather Jesus saying, those gates are not going to burst open. And they're not going to let out this terrible horde of these underworld entities that want to come and wreak havoc on planet earth in the name of the god of death who is satan you know so going back and looking at all those things was absolutely pivotal and then building on that foundation i can then go to corrupting the image volume three where we're going to come up to armageddon we're going to look at uh, the abomination we're looking at armageddon and um you know the story's not over and even after jesus comes back and Satan's put away in the abyss for a thousand years. Well, the story's not quite over yet because yeah. he's only put away for a thousand years, right? That's a, right. that's a definite amount of time. And he's going to, he's going to get out. And so what happens after that is kind of this big question. So, um, so, so that's where I'm headed. That's where I'm headed next. Wow. Yeah. So I'm going to unpack what you said a little bit. And I have some, <laughs> some pictures uh, that you just refer to that you, that you put in the book. Um, that I wanted to give the audience a chance to take a look at. Um, but since you've already, um, uh, you already snuck in that you're working on corrupting the image four, I've got to ask, let's, you know, at, at this point, you know, what, what is that going to be about? Well, so book four, uh, I'm not sure, quite sure on the subtitle yet, but um, what happens is, you know, you, you think that, okay, Jesus comes back and we live happily ever after. Well, we do eventually, but Satan is put away for a thousand years. We get to experience the millennium, a uh, lot of good times there. But at the end, there's going to be a revolt, a rebellion, and people will choose the side of Satan like the sands of the sea. That's how many people are going to choose his side. And there, there are little glimpses throughout scripture 
talking about what's going to happen, especially the book of Zechariah. It talks about if people in that day do not go up to Jerusalem, then there will be no rain for them. You know, so that just gives you a sense of, wait, why wouldn't somebody go up to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast during this incredible time? Like, why wouldn't they do that? If Jesus is here, he's destroyed all the, the wiles of the devil, and he's gotten rid of the Antichrist and, you know, all that. And he's now reigning over this pristine earth. Yeah. Why would people rebel? It, it begs the question, right? And so we're going we're gonna to look at that. We're going to uh, talk about, you know, kind of the average daily life, what it might be like during that time. But then this growing sense of angst that some people feel like I could do it better if I could just, you know, live my own life and I didn't have to answer to Jesus. And if I could do what was right in my own eyes, it would be good. And here's the thing. Jesus doesn't want anybody to be in his kingdom who doesn't want to be there because we're all going to hang out for like a very long time, you know, forever. And he doesn't want somebody there that says, I really don't want to be here. <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, I didn't sign up for this. Right. Yeah. So he only wants willing, voluntary participants to be in his kingdom. And if you don't want to be in his kingdom, you don't have to be in his kingdom. And so this is going to be the final sifting, the final chance for people to opt in or to opt out. And unfortunately, a lot of people will opt out at the end of this whole thing, but that will be their choice. And he will let them have a champion who can, um, you know, further their cause and be their voice and lead them to something. And, uh, and, and, and it's pretty, it's pretty interesting. So I've already worked out a lot of the details of, um, you know, what that battle is going to be like, what some possible strategies that Satan will have. And, uh, so, but yeah, you know, I got to finish book three first. <laughs> yeah. So then I'll get to wow. book four. Yeah. Cool. 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 Uh, that sounds fascinating. Um, you know, we're going to be talking about two, two in that series, obviously three, three, uh, is not even out yet. And here we are talking about four, which, uh, but you know, <laughs> I, that does sound very fascinating because, um, you know, I think we're, we're getting close to that to that uh, that thousand years where we're going to see Jesus here, and so that's uh, been something that's kind of been on my mind, um, thinking about uh, life in the millennium, and I'm reading through some of the uh, the prophetic books in the Old Testament, and you know, there's you know we, we see some glimpses in in uh, Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah, and so um, that's something that just me personally, I've been kind of looking at some of that, so I'm looking forward to down the line. Uh, you know, reading what you had to say on that, but getting back to our topic here, um, you had mentioned uh, this cylinder, and I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and put the I'm gonna share my screen so so everyone can see what you're referring to. But I'd like for you to, to comment on the origins of of the cylinder. No, that's not the cylinder. That's yeah, that was it. That was rendering of it in a second. I'm not sure. Um, maybe I'm going the wrong direction. It's flipping through all the pictures. The first um, one you had it. Yeah, I don't know why. It seems to be just be like going through all of the photos, uh, <laughs> okay. like as a slideshow or something. Um, well, they're all interesting. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I want to go go through them. I'm not sure. Let's see. Here we go. Um, so here's the here's the cylinder. Yeah, sorry about that. I'm not yeah. sure. It automatically, okay. we're kind of going through them. But uh, talk talk to us about the origin of this, 
um, and, 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 and what the, what this means. Yeah. So yeah, you can see there on on the left that uh, cylinder. What they would do is take a little piece of um, stone or something, and they would carve into it the relief, and then um, or the or the impression, and then they would roll that on a bit of soft clay, and it would leave this um, this uh, this expression here. Uh, it's pretty clever technology. I mean, this is you know kind of the first TV, right? <laughs> um, Right, yeah. But uh, you know, you could you could reproduce this again and again, uh, which I think is pretty clever. But yeah, be that as it may, the message that this is sending, this is like the first programming, right? Uh, the message here. So the the person on the far left is just a worshiper. They're pouring out an oblation to the to these gods, and on top is Inanna. She's got probably some uh, rain in her hands or something like that. You know, she has. The ability to give out rain she's very much associated with the springtime uh, for some reason she got this crazy idea to go into the underworld um, and every time she went through a particular gate they made her take some of her clothes off and by the time she got all the way in the demons you know had her and they said they weren't gonna let her go well she was looking for somebody to uh, kind of take her place but nobody would take her place and so because her husband uh, Tammuz was not crying for her, then uh, he got to go the other half of the year and be in the underworld uh, while she came up at springtime. Uh, but in any event, she, uh, you know, so she's this, this um, young woman, you know, she's uh, always sexually active, but never getting pregnant, right? Never going to lose her, her, you know, nice figure. And she really represents lust. I mean, in a word, she represents lust. And Inanna literally means the queen of heaven. And we see that in Jeremiah, where the women and the men and the, and the young, young people are making cakes for the queen of heaven. So, you know, this, um, this, this goddess and what she represents was then exported around the world. Well, that, of course, is a later story. But so here she's standing on the back of the beast. Now, this always raises the question, who's really in control? Is she in control? Because she's riding on the back of the beast. Is the beast in control? Or, uh, you know, be, kind of behind our little screens here, or at least behind mine, as, as I'm looking at it, sorry. Uh, but then you have, um, you have Enlil. He's the one driving. He is in the chariot. And... Uh, on top of his head, you can see that he has, you can't see it really well in this one, but in other depictions of him, you can see that he has 10 crowns on top of his head. Yeah, yeah. so there's, there's another one where there's like 10 crowns on his top of his head. Um, but yeah, so this is now uh, a, a, just a little easier to see here. So again, looking at that beast, you can see that this is a chimeric creature, right? It's, it's a, this is also called the Anzu bird. And the Anzu bird um, obviously has wings. He has a lion's body, but he also has uh, feathers. You can see that he's feathered. And then he has this big wide tail, kind of like a bird would have. That will become a, a scorpion's tail in, in later renditions of him. Uh, you can see that he has eagle talons, but he has a lion's head and he's spewing out venom from his mouth. So, you know, he's the one pulling, and that representation there is Nin Urta. 
Ninurta is is um, is really Nimrod. So just a, a word on Nimrod. Nimrod, I think it, the Bible deliberately distorted his name from Nimrod or from Ninurta, which means Lord of the Earth, to the rebel. And I don't think any parent's going to call their kid rebel because right? <laughs> you don't want your right. kids to rebel even mafia bosses don't want their kids to rebel <laughs> do what i tell you right i mean they they yeah. want them to obey <laughs> so um so what the bible is doing is saying you call yourself lord of the earth but we know that you're the rebel right and ninorta means let's rebel uh which is a very or, or nimrod a very strange name but ninorta lord of the earth so he's 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 um that anzu bird is Ninurta, but um, uh, Franz uh, Wiggerman, he he points out in one of his writings that he says, actually, I mean, it, it is Ninurta, but it's actually Enlil, which is fascinating because we see in the book of Revelation, in chapter 13, that this, you know, he says, I was standing on the, the shore of the sea, and the sands of the sea, and I saw rising up out of the water a beast with these different heads. And then we see that it's the same description of the dragon in Revelation 12, right? It's almost identical. And then it says that the dragon gave him his power, throne, and his great authority. So that all of the qualities and authority and power and dominion of the dragon is now bestowed on and transferred to the beast, which is really interesting. And this idea is not something that's new in the book of Revelation, but it's actually originating in ancient Mesopotamia, uh, specifically in that Anzu bird, which is just one of the many depictions of Enlil. But that Anzu bird is both Ninurta and Enlil. And I'm like, wow, that's pretty interesting, you know, because we see that same uh, merging of these two identities in the book of Revelation. Well, let's go back to Revelation, or excuse me, to Genesis chapter 10, where um, we're told that Nimrod was a, uh, he became a, uh, a mighty one. Okay, he became a Gibor. And it's really strange the way that that is said, you know, like, so he has a human, he has human parents, but then something happens. In fact, he's so impressive that God takes note. He says that he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. You're like, okay, so he was a really good shot. You know, he wow. could shoot a, shoot a deer and God's like, wow, he's a great shot. Is that yeah. what God is saying? Or was it something else? But the fact that he says that he was a Gibor and that is a, a word that can just mean a hero, a mighty one, but it can also mean somebody who is a hybrid. And we see that in Genesis chapter six, where the sons of God mated with the daughters of women and they begat the Nephilim, the Nephilim, and these were the mighty men, the, ne the Giborim. Yeah. And so in, uh, in uh, Genesis chapter 10, where it says that he became a Gibor, in the Greek, it says he became a gigas, right? So gigas is a giant or not just physically tall. That maybe happened, but maybe it didn't. But it really, it means hybrid. 
It means a gigas is somebody who is um, a hybrid, half man, half God. Whether they're tall or not is, is really beside the point. So he, he's the first one after the flood to become what you had a whole bunch of creatures like the Nephilim before the flood. Satan starts over with Nimrod. And, um, you know, that would be his, his modus operandi un, until, well, I don't know when it stopped necessarily, but he would use that for a very long time. And so we see in the ancient literature that the qualities and authority and characteristics that Enlil had, those were always transferred to Ninurta because what was happening is Satan was using him. He was using Nimrod as his avatar. He was allowing him to uh, have these skills and abilities and all this power because really what Satan was doing was just completely using him as his no, avatar, as his agent, but not from afar, but probably dwelling inside of him and possessing him and even mingling with him. It, there's an interesting article that came out in 2019 about a guy named Chris out of Reno, Nevada, and he had leukemia and he needed a bone marrow transplant. And so a nice person in Germany uh, made a donation and they were following Chris for a while. This, um, uh, this uh, laboratory was following him and um, he had some you know, friends that worked in forensics and so they were kind of following him to see what was gonna happen. You know? Well, it turns out that his, the DNA in his blood was no longer his own. And then they checked his sperm and that was no longer his own, but it was actually that of his German donor. <laughs> and it's Crazy. pretty wild when you think about it, right? Here, you know, if he's to sire children, they would not genetically be his. I mean, that's wild to think about, you know? And, you know, you know in, in bone marrow, that's like the most essence of who you are. Uh, even in, like in Hebrew, when you say, you know, I myself, you'd say, you know, that's me, which is literally you're saying my bone, right? So etzem is, is your bone. So it's that's me is, you know, down deep in, in the innermost part of me, right? So if the innermost part is changed to that of a donor, what I'm suggesting is Satan overshadowed Nimrod in a way that was similar to how the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary, but instead of there being a, a sexual union or a, a union of, of uh, gametes, here there was a, a transformation of the, uh, the germ cells. And uh, so that it was actually, he was changing at a fundamental level throughout his whole person. Mm. And he literally became a hybrid. He was no longer human. He became a god. And I think this is the deal with the devil that he made because what a deal, you know, you, you know, Satan comes and says, look, and look, you can become a God. People will, keep, will say your name forever and uh, you'll be the hero of myths for thousands and thousands of years. And we see this, you know, you say, well, we don't ever talk about Nimrod. Well, that's true. But again, 
we have syncretisms. And once we understand where those originated from, and then as the languages changed, then so did the particular, the, the, the word itself might've changed, but the meaning behind it and the individual behind it did not change. So we see that Nimrod or Ninurta became known as the, um, uh, he became known as Melkart, the king of the city. Melkart is the, uh, the deity in view in Ezekiel 28, where God says, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre. He's talking about Melkart. And then there was a bilingual inscription that was found in Malta. Half of it was, one side was in Phoenician, the other side was in Greek. And so Melkart became Heracles or Hercules in the Greek tradition. And who is Hercules? Well, he's the hero, right? And his name, uh, Heracles, right, is, you know, is Hera's fame, right? So he's this, this famous one. Uh, and so it all goes back to, to Ninurta or back to Nimrod. And Nimrod became a hybrid with Satan. So we, we, again, we just see this again and again and again uh, of all this syncretism and how, you know, it can get a little bit complicated, I understand, because there's a lot of names. But once you start to follow the thread, you're like, oh, okay, I see how we went from here to there. And then, you know, again, on that cylinder seal, that beast, right, that beast is the same beast that in Revelation 17, the woman was riding a beast, right? That's what John saw, which is weird. Like, what does this have to do with anything about the Bible? But now we've seen it, right? We see exactly what it looks like. And it also says in Revelation 17, the beast that was, is not, and will ascend out of the abyss. Well, that's when we go and we... You know, we already talked about Nergal a little bit and how Nergal and Ninurta, again, are syncretisms. So Nimrod or Ninurta is the god of the dead. He's the god of the underworld. And he's the one that was, is not in John's day. And then he will be, and he will ascend in the last days. So I mean, it, it was something that, again, I had to dig really deep to try to understand, okay, where is all this coming from? Because otherwise, it just sounds like John was, you know, smoking something that he shouldn't have been smoking. And, you know, he was just, you know, having a pretty weird you know, trip, right? But um, it, it's a trip, all right. But it's, it, it's nothing to do with drugs. This has to do with what was in the past. And then we have essentially forgotten it for a couple thousand years because it's literally been buried. It's been buried underneath the sand. And starting in the 1800s, you had people that were doing all kinds of archaeology, unearthing these things. And then you have whole new areas of academics that were started as a result. You had the areas of uh, Sumerology, um, uh, Akkadian, right? So Sumerian, Akkadian, these were languages that had been lost. And then they you know, literally dug these up and they found them and started to translate them. And, and, uh, and, you know, that's been refined again and again. And so now we're really at a point where, oh, like we, we're starting to get it now. We're starting to understand 
Uh, and we have such incredible access. I'll tell you, I could not have written this book if we had not had the internet uh, because I'm finding very scholarly sources online that make it completely accessible for, for me to come along and to search through the database and to say, hmm, I wonder what this word might mean, you know, and I can go and, and look, look through this database and, and find it. And uh, I'm very grateful for that. So we're at such an incredible point where we can now can start connecting the dots like never before. Yeah, man. Um, yeah, it's awesome. And getting the book, you like, like maybe like before the first chapter, even I think you put in like a chart or you had all the, the different names and iterations of, you know, Satan um, throughout the ages, which you touched on. Um, I just want to maybe I'll go over some of those, but I wanted to go through some of the other pictures because I know you've already touched on some of them. So this is. Um, that that's also the Anzu bird, um, though you know. Again, you can, you see that it starts to transform, and what's yeah. really interesting is that in Daniel it says that I saw a beast uh, with the you know like a lion and with the uh, wings of an eagle, and then it was made to stand on two feet like a man. Well, this is this is Ninurta. Um, a variation, obviously, on that theme, but you can see the scorpion tail in the back. Uh, you really can't see his uh, serpent head phallus, which is okay, but um, but just understand that it's there, and you can see that he has at the front. You know, he's got some kind of maybe lion-like paws, but they kind of look like eagle's talons to some degree. So you know, this 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 representation of him is changing. Yeah, and that's the one from about 1200 BC. This is on a, a Kuduru stone. Uh, so that's, again, the same same thing. Yeah, that one's just a lot easier to see. So you can see that scorpion's tail, uh, the serpent had phallus. Uh, he has a bow, right? We know that in Revelation chapter six, there's one that came out with a bow, but notice he has two heads. I mean, that's pretty weird. So that, that other head is a lion's head. And, you know, when you, when you look at Revelation chapter nine, and you look at these, these creatures, I mean, I had to go through Revelation chapter nine, it, it took me so long to put all this stuff together. Because, you know, you, you kind of get a sense, you're like, I wonder, but then you got to really work it out. Like, does it actually work out that way? Or am I just seeing things, right? So I had to go through and and, and, you know, kind of painstakingly compare and contrast uh, Revelation 9a with Revelation 9b. And I see that, oh, this is, this is a composite image that John was seeing. It kind of looks like two different things, but it's really, it's a composite image of, uh, of a single creature, 200 million of them, but they're all looking like what we just saw on that Kuduru stone. And those are the creatures that according to Revelation, are going to come out. And according to first century Judaism, uh, and found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, they thought that these creatures were going to come out. According to ancient, uh, ancient uh, Mesopotamia, those are the creatures that are going to come out. So, you know, again and again, we see that these are the creatures that will come out. And I will be talking about that in, in book three as well. 
uh, where we really see them in action. And I, I think that when Jesus comes back, he's going to uh, do battle with these creatures based on Isaiah chapter 34, where it says that his sword was bathed in blood in heaven. And then the, the blood dropped down to the ground. Well, how can Jesus be doing battle with somebody in heaven? I mean, is he fighting F-16s or something or what's going on? I think it has nothing to do with our technology. I think it has to do with Satan's technology, with that army of 200 million of those. Um, that, that creature sometimes is known as Pavilsag or Nergal. Um, but in any, any event, those things that are going to come out of there that we saw there on that Kaduras stone, it's <laughs> pretty crazy stuff. Yeah, so I guess my, you know, from what I'm understanding is that, you know, we're, we're, you're gathering some understanding on the book of Revelation that um, couldn't be understood without going back to ancient times and looking at some of the symbolism that was used there. Uh, and by understanding that, now we basically kind of decode what we see going on in the book of Revelation. Um, up until that point, you know, a lot of what we hear in modern times, when we for example, when we take a look at the these locusts that are coming out of the, 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 the abyss, people try to symbolize that or say it's something else, it's something different. You already mentioned the same thing goes on with the uh, the woman that rides the beast. They say, well, it's the Vatican, it's this, it's that. Um, but uh, what you're saying, this, 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 is, this was known in ancient times, and I imagine it's because they saw these creatures. Um, so are, are, are these the are, are these is this part of the, the Nephilim that that were created uh, before the flood, and we know that they were after the flood. So I guess my question is, uh, when were these creatures here, um, and what's the connection with with, with Nimrod and with Satan? Um, can we condense this down to to exactly what what's what's going on with the, with these creatures? We hear a lot yeah. about you know, giants, yeah. but you know, this is something yeah. that we don't really hear a whole lot of lot of. And so um Yeah. You know, that's a that's a great question. That actually makes me think uh I should add a chapter in the next book. Um yeah, I mean, we, we don't know. There is a reference in the book of giants from the Dead Sea Scrolls that talks about um how not so much Nephilim, right? So Nephilim are human angelic beings, but it says that they were, um, they were corrupting all flesh. And we see that in the book of Genesis, but also that they were creating monsters is what it says in the book of giants. So um I'd have to speculate, of course, right? I, I don't know this to be true, yeah. but it, it's it's fun to speculate. <laughs> um, and now you got me thinking, because uh, yeah, I'm I'm putting these together. Um, you know, it could be again, I'm speculating, but it could be that that reference there in the book of giants and to the fact that they were making monsters, uh, it's tough because that particular portion in the book of giants is very fragmented, right? It's just, it's not in good quality. And so scholars have 
done their very best to piece that together and, um, you know, take a hard look at that. But, um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's at least plausible in my opinion that, that that reference could be referring to those, um, to those, those creatures that we see in revelation chapter nine, but yeah, I don't like to speculate too much because I like to back base, base things on facts, not on too much speculation. So I don't know, but I'll, I'll look into that. I think that's a, that's an excellent question. And maybe I can go and take another look at the text there. And uh, yeah, I think it's the book of giants or the Genesis Apocrypha and one of those two um, that talks about that. So maybe I'll yeah, dig deeper. Yeah. <laughs> you got that was thinking. one of my big questions because you yeah. seem to, you've unlocked it here, but then it just probed more questions for me as to, yeah. you know, exactly, you know, we only kind of have, as you mentioned, just bits and pieces that we can kind of fit together. You know, we have stories of, you know, mermaids and centaurs and um, other hybrid beings other than just the giants. Uh, and then here we have this, this locust, you know, <laughs> what we're looking at is just something that's totally bizarre. Um, but, uh, but there it is in scripture and, 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 and here it is in ancient times depicted. So it's, uh, it, it, it makes you wonder. Um, so I want to share the, that picture of, um, I, I guess this is uh, Gilgamesh, which, um, which is, from my understanding, also uh, Nimrod. And this is uh, at that museum in Paris. Mm -hmm. And we see him holding a lion like he's a puppy dog, right? Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, that, that was probably his actual height. So he, according to my calculations, he, well, actually not mine, but... Um, I, I forget the author. I think it was Noah Kramer, if my memory serves me, um, that talked about that and that he was he was 18 feet tall. So then I, I just figured out, you know, how much he would have weighed. And he was a big dude. <laughs> he was a very yeah. big dude. He was about 5,000 pounds. I mean, you know, so if you weigh 5,000 pounds, um, you know, if an average lion weighs 400 pounds, you know, that's equivalent to holding a like you know a cat or a chihuahua or something like that i mean it's yeah it's entirely conceivable that you could you could hold a, you know a 400 pound creature if you're that big uh yeah this guy was enormous and the name gilgamesh uh means the um the uh the ancient hero so again we see this idea of the hero and, you know, scholars are not entirely sure, um, you know, how, how, you know, whether Nimrod came from Nin Urta, and some have suggested Gilgamesh, and it could be that it's both, you know, that's, an, that's a real possibility that it's actually both when we start looking at this. So, you know, I don't say definitively that he had to be, but I'm, I'm very much persuaded that Gilgamesh uh, was probably a depiction of Nin Urta uh, or Nimrod. And um, yeah, he became a he became a Gibor, all right. And he was not this regular guy. And it's interesting because he goes to talk with 
with uh, Utnapishtim, who was uh, their version of Noah. And, you know, he's trying to find immortality. You'd think that he has it. I mean, he's a huge guy. He clearly has, you know, great prowess. And, and even just based on how long people were living back then, he should have lived, you know, 450 years if he hadn't done anything. Right. Uh, so he, he probably would have lived, I would guess, you know, a thousand years. I don't think that would be hard to imagine at all uh, if, you know, if somebody didn't cut him down or something. But, but clearly he doesn't have immortality, right? There's a, there's a difference. Living a long time is not the same as living forever. And so in the story, he's going and looking for immortality. Well, he finally finds Utnapishtin, who tells him, you can't do it. You know, if you if, try staying awake for seven days, and if you can't do that, then forget it. And how can you have immortality? <laughs> and uh, so, you know, he's kind of bummed at the end. It's like, oh, all that for nothing. I, I can't. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's very likely that we're, we're looking there at, uh, at Nimrod. So this may be speculative as well, um, and you know you hinted at it earlier as Satan's using this human, and he now has a presence on Earth as a human, right, um, to to carry out his will. And as Nimrod has given himself over more and more to Satan, um, he essentially they, they become one in the same where mm -hmm. you know as you mentioned we see Enlel or Satan and we see Nimrod kind of used in, interchangeably um do we know I mean outside of that you know what is the process here that this man became this Gabor do we have any any clues to how that actually happened well besides what I've you know already explained we I think yeah. we have a mechanism we have a scientific uh, explanation as how this could happen, right? That uh, Chris of Reno, Nevada took on I another gotcha. person's bone marrow and then his DNA transformed, right? So gotcha. what I'm suggesting is probably Satan possessed him. And if, and I'm, again, I'm speculating here, but if it were a prolonged possession, it could have changed his DNA. Hmm. And based on what we know from modern science and what happened with Chris in Reno, Nevada, then there could be a real, uh, you know, genetic transformation yeah. that would take place. And if your genes are Satan, <laughs> then, uh, you know, what exactly that means? Well, we, we know from based on uh, Genesis chapter six, that when the sons of God gave their seed to women, then out came this hybrid creature that were powerful. They were big they were an incredible menace to the planet and we see the uh the remnant of those in the people of the amorites and they were very tall they were um you know very formidable people the the israelites came back and said well we <laughs> we thought we were grasshoppers and they thought so too <laughs> you know so uh, so there was a real a real change uh, in these people yeah um, so yeah, I, I think, um, you know, the Bible doesn't spell out, you know, that Satan, one day Satan came to Nimrod and he said, Hey, yeah. you know, it, it doesn't tell us that I wish it did, but it doesn't, 
but it gives us enough clues that we can at least piece together enough to get a composite image. We can say, okay, so we know this to be true. We know this and this and this. So therefore we can use a little bit of deduction and put these things together and come up with a picture that's, you know, I would guess somewhere between 80 to 90% accurate, you know, and then there's that unknown that we're just, we can't be sure of. Uh, and then looking forward, uh, if the beast that was there in the ancient days is the same beast that's going to come out of the abyss in the end times, there again, I think we have uh, more pieces to add to this puzzle so we can get a better view of what was going on. Um, for example, we see in Revelation 13, there uh, it talks about how the, um, the dragon um, or the, this beast that rises up, right? He's got seven heads, 10 horns on his horns, 10 crowns, got a blasphemous name. The beast, which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like a bear, his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power, his throne and great authority. Right. And so the beast is giving it all to uh, the dragon is giving it all to the beast. And the last I checked, Satan doesn't like to share. He doesn't like to give his glory to anybody else. He's like, I'm the top dude here. So why would he do that? Because he's using this person. This person is becoming really transformed. In fact, in Second Thessalonians chapter two, it says that the, the man of sin, the son of perdition, will go into the temple of God and he will declare himself to be God and he will show himself to be God. So it's not just empty words. Talk is cheap. This guy is going to be more than a talker. He's going to deliver the goods. He's going to show that he's the real deal. In fact, he has to be because the two witnesses will be on planet earth and they will be powerful, right? Yeah. God is going to give them his power and they can strike the earth with plagues as often as they want. They can call fire down from heaven. They can turn the waters to blood. These guys are invincible until the beast that arises out of the abyss overcomes them, right? He is going to somehow manage to get the power to kill them. How does he do that? I would suggest that it'll be a modern day man who will then acquire uh, somehow, I don't know how he's going to acquire it, but he will acquire the ancient DNA from Satan, or maybe Satan just gives him more of his DNA and it's the same DNA he gave to Nimrod. Yeah those thousands of years ago i think that's a pretty likely scenario so these two will merge once again and so we're going to see that all of satan's powers will then become the powers of the beast and that's when that that melding of their personas the melding of their powers and their their um their mission their desires everything becomes one again and then Satan has an avatar that he can both possess, but not just possessed where he can get kicked out, right? He got kicked out of Judas, right? He was using Judas, 
but then Judas kicked him out and went and hanged himself. Whereas this guy is going to be fully committed and fully given over to Satan, so much so that their identities really are merging. So when you're talking about the beast, you're really talking about Satan. When you're talking about Satan, you're really talking about the beast. Yeah. So it'll be pretty complete. Yeah. You did a really good job in your book of kind of displaying how what you're describing now in in maybe a lesser sense has been, as you just mentioned with uh, Jesus Iscariot, has, has been going on really throughout the ages. And, you know, first we see that with, with Nimrod, there's uh, Og of Sham, there's, you know, Nebuchadnezzar's the king of Tyre, as you mentioned, uh, Baal, Moloch, and um, Asherah. And, and so we, we kind of see this this being played out um, and it really provide some some context behind what we what we're ultimately seeing with, with the, the beast and the woman that rides the beast uh, but I do want to ask before we kind of move on here um, because you've described this woman that rides the beast well and uh, I do think it, it's more than as you described just a city yet the scripture does describe it as a city is it both um, this spirit of Ishtar uh, and the city, um, so I, I don't I don't want to get away from from this from what we're reading in scripture about this mm-hmm. this woman being a city. Uh, it, so my, my question there is, you know, what what, what what do you believe about about what scripture said being a city? Is this ultimately going to find uh, its fulfillment in a location? Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a great question. So, yeah, in Revelation 17, right, you have uh, this woman who's on this beast, uh, mystery, or Babylon, the great, right, the mis- mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And so here's this woman drunk with the blood of the saints, right? And then it says that the, uh, the beast and the 10 kings are going to destroy her, right? And it even says... The waters on which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. And then the beast and the ten horns are going to destroy her with fire. All right, so yeah, what's going on? And the woman that you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. All right, this is a very difficult um, mystery to solve. I'm not trying to applaud myself here. Um, but it took me a lot of, uh, a lot of midnight oil to kind of, to, uh, to finally put this together. And I'm actually talking about this in, in book three, because, um, you know, in book two, I showed the evidence of who, and then I'm trying to put together, okay, how does it all fit together at the end? Right? Like that's, that's the big question. Um, but, I, but I do allude to it in book two, which is the the this woman ishtar inana she started in babel right and she's the the lure she is lust right so she's not a thing necessarily and certainly she's not a real goddess but she's an idea a philosophy that started in babel uh, in the land of shinar which was probably almost for certain started by nimrod okay certainly by satan but probably by nimrod as well and 
what happened then is this personification of lust that we call the woman that we call Ishtar. She then was exported to all the cities of the world. And so that's the trouble. Like that's why when you say, well, uh, the, the woman that rides the beast is um, New York City. I'm like, well, yeah, but no, right? It's yes, because she exists there, but that's not her origin. Her origin is Babylon, the, the one in Iraq, that Babylon. Yeah, yeah. But, but a, a, a piece of her, a, a copy of her has been exported to every city in the world. And you can find this system of Babylon, that you can find this system of lust and all that it represents everywhere you go. Um, certainly it's in alive and well in Hollywood, right? And Hollywood has done, you know, incredible things to help spread the uh, propagation of this, this idea and this lust. Uh, so many, you know, commercials in America, programming and things that are always making us feel like I need that. I got to have, got to have that thing, you know, and that's all part of the system. And so I think it's more pronounced in some places than others, but it really is everywhere. And the kings of the earth, especially, uh, especially the ones that have given into lust as a means of conquest, right? It's not just a, a king is there and he's protecting his people, but he's like, I'm going to protect my people so well that we're going to go and conquer everybody else, right? That's just lust. That's, and that's the, you know, they're, they're giving into that lure of Inanna. So to put it all together, I would say that what we have in Revelation 17 and 18 goes back to the origins, right? So many times in a story, you've got to understand the origin to understand the ending, right? If you just skip to the end of a book, you can get the ending, but you're like, but I don't understand it. It doesn't make sense because you have to go back to the beginning to see how did all of this get started. And that's what I think has been missing in much of our revelation studies is that we've, you know, we've kind of, you know, peaked open at the end of the book. We're like, wow, this is really interesting, but I don't understand what it means. Yeah. Because we haven't necessarily had the means to go back and understand the origin of the story. And I would say that she starts in Babylon. In fact, I'm actually expecting uh, an actual city of Babylon to be rebuilt. And, you know, people say, oh, well, that could never happen. It'd take too long. Well, first of all, I think a lot of us have a bias of, come on, Lord, let's hurry up and get this thing over with. <laughs> and uh, a lot of us want it to happen in our lifetimes. And boy, I understand that because I've felt the same thing, you know, but, but we don't know. It may not happen in our lifetimes. Uh, and it may, it might start as a, a small trickle and it becomes eventually a flood. On the other hand, a lot of things can happen very quickly nowadays. We know that with all of the, in, you know, just incredible construction methods that uh, we have around the world. I mean, China is building these skyscrapers in record time. You know, they built a 30-story skyscraper in 30 days. That's pretty wild. Uh, then there's also a modular approach where they, they build um, Lego blocks, for lack of a better word, in a factory 
They're the size of a shipping container. So they're all standardized. And then they can make these very beautiful um, buildings based on them. They don't look like a bunch of shipping containers. They actually look really nice. And, um, and that's one way they could do it. So I think, I think you know, while it, it, it may take a long time, but I also think it's very possible that Babylon could be built um, very quickly and faster than any of us could actually imagine. I think a city could spring up under the right circumstances, of course, right? probably not under today's circumstances, but things can change quickly in the world. You know, so this is certainly an area where you know, there's far too many variables for me to try to predict how it's going to happen, but that something will happen. I think that is pretty certain from scripture. And I, I really believe that because God said that he is going to destroy the city in one hour. And that never happened. And so God will always keep his promises. When he says something, he will do it. And if he says he's going to destroy it in an hour, I think he's going to destroy it in an hour. I don't know how else he could do that. Because ancient Babylon, when you know, when the Persians came in, they didn't destroy the city. They just conquered it. And, uh, you know, the Babylonians, Babylonians woke up the next morning and <laughs> discovered they had new management, <laughs> you know, and then, uh, then comes Alexander the Great, and they pretty much opened the gates for him. They're like, yeah, we're sick of these Persians. Come on in. And so he conquered that city as well. And then it, it essentially just fell into oblivion, right? It, it, it had a slow fade but it was never destroyed in one hour. And yet God is very clear about that in the book of Jeremiah, the book of Revelation, that he's going to have a very pronounced judgment on the city of Babylon. So, you know, I think, I think we're going to see somebody go over there. I think, you know, the beast ultimately will go over there. He will uh, quite possibly buy some land at, at, you know, pennies on the dollar and, uh, and he'll build a city. And then that will become the new, um, maybe, you know, it won't be the UN in, as far as I'm speculating. It'll be some new version of it. Maybe it would be called the, the Babel Initiative or something like that. And it'll be a, a, a way to get the world reunited. And you know what's, you know what's really crazy? I've actually been working on a, a, another book, actually. <laughs> I'm working on a, a fiction book. Hmm. And it's called Regenesis. And so um, I'm taking all of these details that I'm telling you in a nonfiction way, and I'm taking those with a co-author and we're putting it together in a, in a fictional way. So, you know, kind of like uh, Left Behind, but without, without a lot of those elements of Left Behind. But um, anyway, the, um, I'm sorry, I forgot where I was going, but um Anyway, you know, something, something is going to happen that uh, the world's going to change and he needs to get the world to have a, a new perspective, to have this new initiative. And I think people are going to sign on. I think people will be afraid. I mean, even with this, you know, the stuff that the Pentagon has been releasing, you know, with the UFOs and whatnot, and I don't care if people believe in UFOs or not. I mean, I'd, I'm not even that interested in UFOs, but now they're becoming mainstream, right? Mm -hmm. And, and you know, I don't know that we're going to see flying saucers on the White House lawn or something like that, but it, it's enough that if there's enough expectation, 
And then whatever these tic-tac things are that have been showing up, if those some suddenly manifest, you know, sort of on cue, that could be enough to convince everybody, oh, this particular person works for them, right? And that's all you need. That's all you need for the deception to work. You don't have to give, you know, tons of, of evidence for this. It's just enough to make it look realistic. And, and I think that could be a way that the Antichrist could rise up uh, in the last days. But we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, all right, cool. I'm gonna shift gears a little bit. Um, not not really, um, but you have a, a different take on the Nephilim that uh, I've never heard before. So I want you to talk about that um, and explain how you came to that conclusion. Right. Well, I first heard this from Tom Horn. He's the he kind of put this in my mind of. Mm -hmm. uh, he called it a fit extension. I'm not sure where he got that word fit extension, but but the idea is stuck nevertheless that that these became uh, that, that the Nephilim weren't so much their own, they were not their own persons, but they were a biosuit, an avatar, right? Just like the movie Avatar. Yeah. If, uh, if you've seen that, if people have seen that, right? Where this human um, and the human military that he's with they they're able to build their own replica of, of these yeah. aliens and then he is able to put his his essence his mind into this thing and that's what i would suggest that the nephilim were that they did not become their own persons but they were a biosuit they were an avatar that that these fallen angels needed when when Satan fell, it says in Ezekiel 28 that God says, I took the fire out from within you. So he lost the fiery covering that he had before. And, and that really hurt him. Uh, we know that when um, Jesus says, when, it, when a demon is cast out, it goes into dry and desolate places. And then it was looking for a new home because it's, it's uncomfortable out there. It doesn't like that place. It, there's something soothing and satisfying for an angelic being to be in some kind of a body. I don't know what that is, okay? But there's something, something to it. And so they crave being in somebody, even if they have to squeeze, you know, four to 6,000 of themselves in a single person. That is preferable. Or even hanging out in the pigs is preferable to being cast out completely. So I would suggest that the Nephilim was a, a solution. I call it the Nephilim solution that uh, before the flood, Satan uh, came up with that would provide a, a body for, the, uh, for, for him and whoever else had, had followed him to, to possess. So, um how do they do that well according to the book of enoch there were 200 angels that came down in the days of noah and they took an oath saying that they swore to um to do what they what they were going to do uh, which was to go and to procreate with women um and then i well i didn't discover it but there was a, a text that was discovered by charles warren back in the 1860s uh, which is now in the British Museum. And 
I had heard about this text, but I, I wasn't able to see the, the original for myself. And so I went to the British Museum and I, I finally found it. And I started comparing the original Greek with the translation that uh, Charles Warren and others had provided. And I was shocked to discover that they did not match up. And I'm like, wait, this doesn't make any sense. You know, these are good scholars. And, and yet the, the, the Greek original uh, of, this, uh, of this inscription doesn't match up with, with what they're saying. And so that sent me on a quest to find these two enigmatic words. One I found um, without, too much, without too much pain. Uh, it was just the word bow, which is a, a prefix for bull or for ox. But then this other word was the word uh, batiu, and in the nominative it would be batios. And I'm like, what is this word? I couldn't find it. I looked at every, uh, you know, every uh, Greek source imaginable. Nobody knew, just it didn't exist. Well, long story short, I had been looking at a lot of the Sumerian uh, logograms for Enlil and different, different uh, gods in his category. And there was this, this logogram, this symbol that kept coming up, and it was B-A-D, Bad. And I kept thinking, I wonder if it's possible that that Bad could be the same as Batios in this inscription. So I, I wrote to a professor, uh, Amar Anus, in Finland, who is a um, a seriologist. And I, I'm like, you know, I, I have this crazy idea. I don't know. I, I know enough uh, Sumerian to be dangerous. And uh, I need, you know, an expert to help me out here. Well, you know, he was like, well, I think you're onto something. And so he directed me to some other sources. And, you know, again, short story here, long story short, that word um, I was able to identify that batios is actually coming from Sumerian for as the logogram for Satan. And so what this inscription says is according to the command of the greatness personified God, uh, bull God, batios, those taking an oath proceed from here. And I was blown away because for the first time, that I know of, uh, I checked a lot of sources. Um, now we actually have a record of Satan giving the command to those angels to go and to pro procreate. <clears throat> Until then, we've we've had inferences. It's you know it's been a logical deduction, but it hasn't been actually something that we had in any kind of ancient source. So that was pretty cool. Uh, to make that discovery. And, uh, but the implications are huge, right? This has always been Satan's uh, playground. You know, he's the one calling the shots. The other angels answer to him. And so this was his idea. And here's what, here's what is so diabolic, of course, is I, I, I actually posit in the book that when those angels came down and they took that oath, I don't think that they were fallen yet i think they were in the process of falling but unlike the movie uh minority report where you can be judged for a future crime in god's economy you first have to commit the crime and then you do the time right yeah, so yeah. you know 
so these angels that came down, I think that they were still, quote unquote, good. In other words, they had not yet committed a transgression, but they were in the process. They were about to rob the bank, right? <laughs> you only get you only get in trouble for robbing the bank, right? Not for thinking about doing it. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so that's what I would suggest. And I, I think that's how they were able to come down, still having their regular angel bodies, and then they could procreate with women. And as a result of that, they were then stripped of their glory, stripped of their position as good angels, and they became fallen angels. And I also, in the book, I have a, an appendix where I talk about how uh, angel and, or fallen angel and, and demon, they're really just the same thing. You know, people have made a really big deal about they're two different things, but there's the linguistic evidence is not there to back that up. The biblical evidence is not there to back that up. Um, it, you know, demon, it just means a mighty one, demonios. It just means a mighty one. And it could be a, a good guy or a bad guy, depending on who you're talking about. Um, so they're really just the same thing. Demon just means fallen angel. In fact, the term fallen angel doesn't even appear in scripture. That's something that we've coined to help yeah. us distinguish between the good guys and the bad guys. Yeah. Okay, so I want to kind of talk about this uh, idea of these Nephilim needing their, uh, you know, avatar bodies that they would then possess. Um, because it, as you stated in the Book of Enoch, it talks about 200 that fell. So I was trying to reconcile that with, with the fact that um, all flesh had, had been corrupted. Because... Um, I've always thought of this as, um, you know, them essentially creating the, these hybrid beings, uh, and, and that's how flesh was corrupted, but essentially they're creating suits that they can sort of just, you know, do away with and then jump into another suit. Uh, so how is it that, that all flesh was corrupted if there was only 200 um, of these beings? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Um, you know, I, I don't think we have enough details uh, to fully answer that question. Um, you know, so, you know, let's just take what, the, what scripture says, right? It says that when Men began to multiply in the face of the earth. They saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful or they were good. And they took them as wives and they procreated yeah. and they came up with the, the Nephilim. Okay, so, you know, that then begs the question. Um, certainly the women that, that uh, had intercourse with those demons, they, well, they presumably didn't change, but they weren't exactly on the good side anymore. Okay, yeah. so they were already throwing in their lot with Satan and his bunch. Um, the, the, the babies that they produced, again, I'm arguing that those are avatars, and then they would be inhabited by a fallen angel. Okay, and this, this whole thing went on for... You know, we don't know exactly how long, but it appears that it wasn't too much longer after the time of Seth, 
right? So we have from that time. So it may have been a thousand years where this was all happening, right? So the Bible gives us a summary statement, right? It, unfortunately, I wish it did. I wish it would give us all those amazing details, but it gives us just the summary statement of here's the end result of what happened, right? So to try to fill in the blanks of, well, how did we get there? Sometimes we can find some clues, like from that inscription found on Mount Hermon. Sometimes we have some clues from the book of Enoch or something. But we're, we're kind of at a loss when it comes to saying, okay, exactly how this happened. Um, and again, that's where I like to tell you what I know, tell you what I've read, or I can figure out linguistically. Beyond that, I do my best to try not to go too far afield. So um, I'm not able to really answer that one entirely. Yeah. So yeah, that, I, I tried myself. Um, that was the, that one of the, like the more puzzling aspects of the book that I, I tried to sort of reconcile with. Um, and I sort of thought, so here we have um, these angels falling and they now take wives. So kind of coupled with that question, and here's kind of how I reconciled how this could have possibly worked. Uh, you know, they, they, they make this deal with, with, with man, say, you, you're going to give us your wives, your, your women, we're going to take wives um, in exchange for, uh, you know, for all, all that knowledge and, and, and things that the book of Enoch talks about. Um, so if, if it's truly in, in exchange for taking our wives, I, it, is it possible that man no longer was procreating that, that that's how we see kind of the, the corruption of all mankind is we're no longer producing uh, mm -hmm. outside of that that uh, that line of Seth and we see with, mm -hmm. with Noah's family, there would be no more humans left as all there yeah. would be are just yeah. the, the kind of I, dwindling, yeah. dwindling down of humanity. That, that's kind of how I reconciled yeah. it in my mind as a possibility. Um, I think it's a possibility. Yeah, you know. yeah I, I had another question with that because um and really the the other way around the you know the traditional thought um I, I guess would be that the if, if they were actual um beings the, the these giants that they would now procreate with other women giants and now there's no more humans that way um mm -hmm. but uh so what i thought in my mind was that these um giants after they died that their their spirits were here as demons and that those angels were judged and held in tartarus and mm -hmm. that's how i had always understood this and as you kind of said earlier with your understanding of a fallen angel and demon being the same entities um how, what's your understanding of why we have demons here existing on earth and then we also have these entities that are being held in, in Tartarus for their transgressions, um, mm -hmm. right? So, um, yeah. 
what's yeah. the distinction between those two beings under your understanding of fallen angels and demons being uh, both the same? Yeah, well, I, I think the ones that are held in Tartarus, uh, they actually came and they they uh, made this compact and they decided to have relations and that was a bridge too far. They crossed the line. And, you know, according to the book of Enoch, it was originally 200. There may have been others that came after them. We don't know, right? That's where we don't have a text to tell us, you know? So I, I want to fill in the blanks as much as you do. I really do. Yeah. But with, without a text, you know, then we can, we can try to deduce the answer, but we never know if that is actual, actually the right answer, right? We, we, it might sound satisfying, but we're not sure. So, you know, again, we just, we don't know, but the ones that went down to Tartarus, they, they went, took a step too far. Uh, it may have been that other angels seeing the success of this, uh, then came and they weren't so much interested in procreating. I, I don't get the sense that angels were somehow like they had the hots for these women. I just don't think that was the case. Uh, from what I can tell, I don't imagine, but again, I don't know, but I don't suppose that angels have hormones, right? They're not, they're not fleshly. They're not earthly yeah. like we are. So they're not they're not chemically based um, creatures like we are, right? Where you might say, well, how could they possibly have seed? Well, seed is about information. It's not about chemicals, right? Now, in our case of humans, chemicals are involved, but um, you know, and you know, to not get too graphic here, but hormones are those chemicals that will turn a person on so that the uh, the the procreative process can then happen, right? Yeah. Um, and it and it feels good, right? But in the case of angels, you know, was it that they were 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 they attracted to the women, or and this is why I point out the word in Hebrew. It doesn't say that they were beautiful, but it says that they were good, and that distinction could tell us a lot. Again, how much? We don't know. But it doesn't mean that they were beautiful and the angels were like, wow, she's so pretty, you know? Um, but it, it's more of, wow, she's good. Well, good for what? Uh, right? Good for what? And so I would argue that the angels weren't trying to settle down and have families and sharing all their dreams with these women, but rather they were like, you look uh, like, I could use you, right? You could help me further my kingdom. And so if I have a, you know, create this, this Nephilim uh, child, then I can inhabit that and I can be a God. I can be a king. People can worship me. And, and so I don't think it's so much about the physical, the physical attraction, but it's more about the purpose, right? There's a purpose in doing that. So that's how I'd answer that. Gotcha. Um, yeah, so, so you, you imagine that these fallen angels would have taken multiple women as their wives under that I, understanding I, that they're not I, like I think, down? Right. You know, I, I think that's entirely possible, but yeah. 
you know, um, it's, uh, yeah, <laughs> you could have a whole bunch, right? In fact, the word hermon and cherem are the same root. And that's really interesting. Wow. Wow. Right? So it's, so it, it's this whole idea of something that is set aside for destruction or so that it's devoted, it's a devoted thing for a very particular purpose, uh, yeah. which could be destruction, right? So uh, whether that's where the word, you know, came from is from the angels, I don't know, but uh, but who knows, maybe. Yeah, interesting. Um, so the, the second incursion, uh, do you see that? Because um, we, we talked about Nimrod, uh, you see that, that same process being played out or you see there being a, 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 another another group that chose to fall. Yeah, I don't think I don't think there was another group. Uh, this has been one of these uh, thorny questions for quite a while, because uh, yeah, was there like another group of people or you know angels that came down and did this thing again? I mean, that's how I would have answered it before uh, before I wrote the book. But now I really think it was Satan who did not come and have did not procreate, but he passed on his seed gotcha. directly to nimrod so nimrod is already a fully grown person right he's he's human he has two human parents there's no weird spiritual hanky-panky going on this is just you know he's human all right and then basically satan comes and makes him an offer hey do you want to be uh, immortal do you want to be a god do you want people to praise your name forever i can give it to you i can make you into a gibor and there's no, uh, there's no, you know, there's there's no uh, sex involved in this whole thing, but it's a matter of overshadowing him. Again, this is where I go back to Chris of Reno, Nevada, that he became somebody else, right? Genetically, he's a different person, even though you know his demeanor is the same, and I'm sure he smiles the same, and probably likes the same things on his pizza, but. But genetically, he's different. He has been transformed. And he's, he's like, well, this is pretty weird that, I can, that I'm not there anymore. And yeah. that's what I would suggest happened with Nimrod, is that Nimrod genetically was transformed. He became a Gibor. He became a hybrid. Uh, and that's because Satan was able to pass on his information uh, in a non-sexual way. Yeah, so and you then, see any... Yeah, and then Nimrod was then able to pass that on. Now, exactly how that happened, um, unless it were in a, you know, maybe he's the one that then passed on sexually. He would then pass that on. I think that's a possibility. Um, in fact, when you get to the, the iniquity of the Amorites, right, God says to Abraham, you know, know for certain that your descendants will be slaves. And when they come back in the fourth generation, um, he says, because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And what I see there is the Amorites were in the process of selling themselves out to Nimrod. And how do I get there, right? I mean, well, the god of the Amorites was, his name was Martu. And Martu, Marduk, they're the same root letters. Martu, Nimrod, same root letters or Nin Urta and Martu, those are the same root letters once you trace them back to, the, to their, um, their roots. You see, you're like, oh, those are the same, right? And, and even when you look at the symbols of 
Martu, and Enlil. They're the same. And, um, and then we know that King Og of Bashan, King Og, he was one of the Amorites. His name means uh, death. And he was the god of death. He was hanging out at Mount Hermon. Uh, he was also, according to Deuteronomy 4, his headquarters were at Ashtarot and Edre. <clears throat> Those were his principal cities. And then looking at the Ugaritic texts, we find that there was a god of that area whose sacred mountain was Mount Hermon, and his headquarters were at Ashtoret and Edre. I mean, it's the same guy, and he was considered to be, by the Ugaritic people, he was considered to be uh, a deified god of death. I mean, it's just, it's wild when you start <laughs> really looking and, and stringing this stuff together. It's like, oh, okay. So, you know, exactly, you know, I, I understand you want to know the, what's the process, right? Well, I can't tell you the process, but I can show you the evidence so that we could kind of imagine what the process might have been, but we don't know that for certain. But we have these big giant markers of telling us, well, we got this here and this here and this here. So therefore, we can maybe deduce and imagine in our minds what it might have been, but, but we're not yeah. told that absolutely. Yeah, I got you. Yeah, I was just curious to... Because I know you, I'm, you've probably thought about it. Just um, even if we can't come up with anything definitive, just right. want to know where you lean uh, is probably the most um, reasonable uh, you know, possibility there. So, cool, cool, cool. Um, I'm looking at time, and although there's a few other things I want to get to, there's a, a couple really, really neat things that you brought out in your book uh, that I definitely want to get to before we close out. And uh, one was the Tablet of Destinies. Um, and then the other, uh, which you really just touched upon in uh, what you, you have like these uh, vignettes, vignettes, uh, mm. and at the, like, and, like every so often uh, mm. at the end, you know, each section where you, you just kind of just dropped in at the end of the book, um, uh, <laughs> replacement theology and, and kind of, uh, I guess Satan's uh, role in that. Uh, so I'd like to, you know, talk about Tablet of Destinies and then replacement theology, and then mm. you know we might uh, close out with you know one of those personal questions. Um, but tell us a little bit about the Tablet of Destinies. Yeah, so the Tablet of Destiny was a device that gave its owner complete authority over the affairs of man, and Satan, of course, Enlil was the one who held the Tablet of Destinies. Um, that Tablet of Destiny and the Destinies and the authority that it, it held was then transferred to Nimrod or to Ninurta. So again, we see this incredible parallel between these two. Well, it's, it's interesting that when, when Jesus comes along, Satan takes him out and you know, tests him or tempts him. And the last temptation, he takes him up on a very high mountain, which I think is Mount Hermon, and, and then reveals all the kingdoms of the world. And he says, all these have been delivered to me, and I can give them to whoever I want. And Jesus doesn't like, objection, that's ridiculous, no way. Right. You know, Jesus just like, yeah, right? Because that was the truth. And in fact, many times Jesus calls Satan the god of this world, 
Um, you know, so he, there, there's really not a contest. Like that's true. He is the God of this world. How did he become that? Well, God makes the planet, gives dominion to Adam and Eve. Satan steals it from them. And now he has this dominion, this authority. And in the ancient world, that authority was symbolized in a tablet, the tablet of destinies. Fast forward to the Bible, book of Revelation, chapter five. And there John has this vision of God sitting on a throne. There's a Ta there's a scroll in his uh, in his right hand, and I think you know tablet scroll. I think they're the same thing. The, the yeah. technology changed, right? They went from clay tablets to uh, to parchment, but it's the same same basic idea. And and an angel is saying, "Who is worthy?" A mighty angel says, "Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals?" Nobody was found worthy in heaven and earth. And John begins to weep. And finally, an elder comes by and says, don't weep. The line of the tribe of Judah has, has uh, prevailed to open it. And he looks over and he sees a lamb as if it's been slain. And so then, you know, they say, you are worthy because you were slain. You're worthy to open this. And it's all about this, this goel, this redeemer um, characteristic this trait of buying something back redeeming something well what did he have to buy back why did he have to redeem you could only redeem something if it's been lost right so what was it that he was redeeming well we 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 learn that when they when god opens up all the seals when he opens up all the seals at the very end the seventh seal he says the kingdoms of this world have now become the kingdoms of our lord and of his christ so when he finishes opening this thing, he now takes full possession and ownership of planet Earth. And how did he do it? Through the cross. That's what was necessary to purchase back the authority of planet Earth. And speaking of authority, the only, the only weapon that Satan has ever had against an all-powerful opponent his authority. You know, if, if God and Satan arm wrestle, God wins every time, you know, because God is infinitely stronger than right. Satan. So, you know, again, Satan's not an idiot. He thought this through. Yeah. He's not like, oh, I can, I'm sure I can out, out maneuver, outpower God. No, you cannot. <laughs> you can't have more power than God. But if God gave the, uh, the dominion to Adam and Eve, and then he can trick Adam and Eve to give him the dominion. Well, guess what? Now he's got the dominion. And now this becomes a legal battle. Yeah. And not a power battle. A legal battle. And so a legal battle is always about authority. Who has the authority? And Satan had the authority. That's what's so incredible. And it, it's, it's symbolized in the Tablet of Destinies. Because he held the tablet of destinies, he held the authority. And Jesus wrested that out of his hands at the, uh, at, the, at the cross, right? And Satan didn't realize that he was actually getting tricked, <laughs> that he was, he had the eyes, the, the wool pulled over his eyes, right? He just didn't see it coming. And he thought as the God of death, 
that he was winning, that he was destroying the seed of the woman who was promised to crush his head. You know, I mean, he had this prophecy of doom over his head for some two or you know, whatever, 4,000 years, roughly. Yeah. And, you know, he probably didn't sleep well at night, right? Because he's like, wait, some guy's going to show up, crush my head. That's what God said. He takes God seriously because he is the creator. Um, and so, you know, he's, he's thinking, well, I overcame him, right? Now he's dead. Now he's part of my kingdom. And once you're part of my kingdom, you're always part of my kingdom. But Jesus went down there. He preached to the spirits in prison. and we know that he got the keys of death and Hades as a result, right? He, he, he got those. And I think he was jingling the keys in front of them. Hey, look here guys, <laughs> you know, and, um, and Satan didn't realize what happened till that day at resurrection day. Right. But, uh, man, that's why we sing about that. Cause that was a pretty monumental event that, um, that, that Jesus accomplished, you know, so yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, so that's the Tablet of Destinies. And there's this one more thing I want to tell you about, which is called the Akitu Festival. The Akitu Festival is where in the ancient world, the, uh, the, the earthly king would sort of dress up as, as Ninurta and he would bring the good news, the gospel. That's the word that they use of Anu's destruction. They would take that good news to Enlil. So Anu was the creator God. He's the one that made everything. He made the heavens and earth, but he had been defeated and his Anu ship, his authority and power and everything had been transferred to Enlil. And so Enlil, Satan never claims to have made the world. I didn't make it. This guy did over here did, but guess what? I defeated him. Right. And, and so now here's the good news. And then in this, in this festival, they would, reenact this whole thing and this great time and how they had slaughtered uh anu and sometimes they'd go into a lot of description about how they had slaughtered him and this was a joyous occasion right but all they're doing is they're really what they're doing is they are applauding satan's victory back in the garden when he effectively stole the keys from adam and eve that's all they're doing and, and that's how they sort of had God over a barrel uh, spiritually in, in a sense, because now the authority was in Satan's hands. And God cannot just come in with guns blazing and say, give me back those keys. Right, like, yeah. well, no, it's not about that. It's about authority. And if you don't have the authority, you don't have the legal right to do it, then you can't do it. And that would make God a liar. It would make him a cheat. Uh, he would be pretty much just like Satan if he had done that. So there was only one way. And Jesus double checked, right? He's like, Father, is there any other way? You know, by the way, uh, is there any other way that we can solve this thing? Uh, no. Be, you know, besides drinking this cup, mm, answer, no. Okay. Nevertheless, your will be done, not mine. And so Jesus went to the cross and he did the work. And it was painful. It was hard. It hurt. And it was real. He did it. And, and that is how he overcame the devil. That is how he uh, bought back what Adam and Eve had lost long ago. Yeah, that's such an, just an incredible, just, it, it, it paints um, all that context behind what we see in Revelation, where 
where the land takes that scroll. Um, and it's just such a beautiful picture of what was lost in the garden, our dominion that, um, that was given over to Satan being bought back. Um, and, and that's why we see Jesus incarnating as a human, um, bearing the punishment. And, and, and here we are, the only way we can, we can receive this redemption, um, this e eternal hope, this promise we have, our resurrection, um, our eternal life is just through, just through the grace of God. Uh, just mm -hmm. because he's good that's who he is um mm -hmm. so uh I, I love that i love that um so you i don't know if you use the words replacement theology in, in that uh, vignette um but you, you certainly you know we see there's this um this, this crushing you see it at, at the cross um and so satan is essentially at that point having to change his game plan uh, up until that point it, it's, it's been all about trying to corrupt and try to keep this uh this thing from happening and then we see it just culminates and he's desperate you know once jesus is there he tries to, to get him to you know he tries to promise him everything if he'd worship him and, and now that that plans out the window so you sort of just drop that in there uh replacement theology is how you you know it, i don't know if you use that voice and you sort of describe that so um explain how how this uh, understanding, um, which is often referred to as replacement theology, is is a ploy uh, of Satan in in this time uh, that we're in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, part of that is, um, yeah. So yeah, he did have to change his his tactics. And what I would suggest is that what what God wants to do is to raise up a pure and spotless bride, right? Paul talks about that. <clears throat> and if he, if Satan can keep the bride dirty, then he has some amount of victory. And I take this back to the story of Balaam. So when Balak hired Balaam to come and curse the children of Israel, he came, he tried, but all that came out of his mouth were blessings. Why? Because the people were blessed. They weren't cursed. They were blessed. However, Balaam really wanted that money. And so he told Balak what to do, which was to send in the Moabite women to seduce the men to say, this is come and see how we worship our gods, uh, the God of Baal Peor. And it says, then the, the indignation of the Lord was hot against Israel. And so he destroyed them, right? So, I mean, 20,000 people died, not because of what Balaam could do directly, but it's what he did indirectly. So you have to yeah. understand that God and Israel entered into a marriage covenant at Mount Sinai. And, you know, God, God understands that they're, they're made of flesh and, you know, he, he has lots of mercy and lots of grace. But there's only one thing that can ruin a holy relationship. And that's when you bring in a lover, when you bring in somebody from the outside, right? Leaving your socks on the floor and the toilet seat up and burning the toast. Uh, those are not something that will make a, a marriage unholy. They might make it annoying, but it won't make it, it won't make it unholy. What makes it unholy is if, if one of the two sleeps around, okay? Uh, has an affair that is 
unholy. And so that's what Balaam or Satan got Balaam to do with the children of Israel. And then God's wrath was against them. Right. And so the whole idea here is that Jesus went to the cross. He resolved that broken relationship. And so now what Satan had to do was to try to keep the bride uh, defiled. And part of that, um, and there's a lot of pieces that require a whole different, <laughs> a whole different show if you ever want to do it. But uh, there's, you know, this whole understanding of how God fixed Israel, how he put Israel back together. Um, it's, it's an incredible story. But <clears throat> if you can keep one of, you know, of the, these, these two people groups, we, talk, we hear about the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And he wants to bring them back together. So there's no more middle wall of separation. But if he can keep them hostile toward one another, so that one side thinks that the other side is illegitimate or is a Christ killer or has no more standing, no more relevance in the world, then, um, well, then God can't really exactly put Israel back together, right? Because one side is warring against the other. And we see this uh, really displayed clearly in Isaiah chapter 11, where it says, he will set up a banner for the nations and will assemble the outcasts of Israel, gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth, and the envy of Ephraim shall depart and the adversaries of Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not envy Judah and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. So that is, in a sense, the the end game of where this is all leading to. And so part of Satan's strategy has been to have the, the church, in air quotes there, <clears throat> hate right. the Jewish people to say, well, we've not completely replaced them. And that's a very dangerous, uh, it's just, it's a terrible blasphemous teaching. Um, and again, it, it, there's a lot of history behind that, but um, you know, that has been part of his strategy. And so I just brought that out in that vignette just to give you a sense of, okay, Satan is not giving up. He doesn't think like, oh, I lost. Boo hoo. Okay. Just, I'll just hang around a couple thousand years till Jesus sends me off to the abyss, you know? Right. No, he, he's fighting to win. He's planning to win. He's not going down without a fight. And he doesn't have this sense of, oh, I'd lost already. No. He, he thinks he's going to win. And uh, I'll bring it out in book three, where he will, he will gain back that authority. The, the authority that he lost, he has a plan for getting it back. And a lot of it, he will get back. Enough of it, anyway, that will yeah. give him immunity so that he can then blaspheme God and those who dwell in heaven. That's because he has authority once again. So that word authority is really huge. Um, it, it's really a huge part of this, this puzzle is, uh, the authority. So, yeah, yeah, you, you did a great job, uh, in your book of laying that out. And I, yeah, I, I tried my best to try to, um, discuss, you know, what I feel like were some of the, the, the grander uh, points that you made. And, uh, and, uh, anyway, I, I really enjoyed our discussion today. Uh, I'd love to have you back on whenever, uh, you know, your, your third part comes out and, and talk more about that. Um, but uh, just recommend for the listener, um, you know, pick up the book, 
Uh, there's so much packed in there uh, and it's, it's really good. So um, why don't you tell uh, everyone um, how to get in touch with you, where, where to get the book as well. Yeah, so yeah, this is the book if, in case people haven't seen it, <clears throat> Crypt Image Volume 2. They can go to my website, douglashamp.com, douglashamp.com. They can go there uh, to my store. They can get it there or they can, of course, go to Amazon and they can order it from Amazon. Uh, so on my site, you can get a uh, an ebook, but uh, if you want the actual hard, hard, uh, you know, well, it's a soft copy, but still, you know, a physical book, uh, go to Amazon. That's where you get it there. So, and also uh, check out the Way Congregation. That is um, the church that I, I lead. And if people want to tune in uh, on Shabbat or if they can make it in person in Lakewood, Colorado, we'd love to see you. Awesome. Right on. Um, why don't you close us out and pray? Sounds good. Lord, thank you for all the things that you've revealed in your word and for the things that we've discovered now in ancient history. We thank you for defeating the enemy for uh, redeeming that tablet of destiny, the tablet of destinies, and that uh, we don't need to weep because the line of the tribe of Judah has overcome. Thank you, Yeshua, for being that sacrifice lamb, that you, uh, you saw the joy set before you, and so you endured the cross, you endured the pain, you endured the mocking and the ridicule, Thank you so much for doing that for us. We thank you in your great name. We pray. Amen. Amen. Um, well, thanks again for coming on. Uh, once again, I really enjoyed it. I'll let you give any, any parting words, um, if you have any. Um, and hopefully, I, like I said, hopefully I can get you back on sometime. I'd, be, I'd love to. I just encourage people, you know, stay in the word. Stay close to, stay close to Jesus. Um, you don't need to know all this stuff to have a great relationship with God, but it is fun to dig in and to really get a sense of these deeper answers to uh, things that we sometimes leave on the surface, which is okay, but it's a lot of fun to go deep and to say, oh, okay, now I, now I get it. You know, it makes so much more sense. So it's pretty cool. Thank you cool. for having me. Yeah, right on, man. Um, thanks for coming on and uh, I'll, I'll keep in touch, man. Take care. All right. Sounds good. Take care. Bye, Doug. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Hope you enjoyed. If you did, make sure to share with somebody you know. Leave us a rating or review. Like and subscribe. You can email me at the Weird Christian Podcast at gmail.com. Let me know who you want on the show. Give me your feedback or just reach out to connect. And with that being said, we'll catch you on the next one.